Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Woo! Welcome to the ITAM Review Radio Show for September 2020. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and we're recording this on Friday 25th of September. I'm joined today by AJ, Sam Beast, uh, Barry, uh, I'm desperately looking at the Zoom picture, Stuart, <laughs> Stuart and uh, haven't got a nickname for Stuart yet, uh, Stuart and Tracy. Welcome Tracy for the first time. Can, can I ask you Tracy, where are you actually calling in from? Thank you. I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. And what's it like? You said that you were a listener to the podcast. What's it like now that you're on the other side? Um, <laughs> is there anything you've been burning to know having been a listener? I'm just excited and happy to be, be here on the call and um, really looking forward to learning from you guys. The UK seems to be far more mature in the practice in Canada in North America, in my experience. The US seems a little better than Canada, but Canada we seem really behind. So, um, yeah, I, I like to listen just to hear what you guys are, are into and doing because uh, I'm not, we're not there yet in North America from my perspective. So, Brett was a former listener. So, we've got at least two. So, that's validated the podcast um so let's dive into some industry news i picked up this um i think i can't remember who forwarded this to me but we had um there's a discussion on linkedin ryan new uh ceo of vendor v-e-n-d-r was talking on linkedin about getting a two dollar refund from slack because he wasn't using a certain account so it's a really proactive strategy from slack refunding unused accounts and it got quite a bit of traction on linkedin did anyone else see this one mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um yeah ryan um as a vendor are a SaaS buying company so they'll they'll do your SaaS procurement for you uh pretty new startup been around a couple of years and it, it's it's about the little things isn't it two dollars back who cares but it happened automatically uh, and he wrote about it and suddenly everyone's like, well, why don't all SaaS companies do this? Um, well, the answer to they don't all do this is because they're all chasing revenue, of course. But it's a small price to pay for a giant chunk of customer satisfaction and, and a degree of loyalty. Because if you know you don't have to manage that, they're going to manage it for you, um, then it's easy, right? I mean, if, if it's just about the money, then you're getting automatic refunds because they've detected that you, you're not using your SaaS. It's got to be a good thing. Um, and it should be possible for all SaaS companies to do that, really, because they know exactly what you're using. They, they know when you're logged in. that they, They're gathering all this data from you. Um, so, yeah, just, just, just kudos to, to Slack for doing that. I think they've been doing it for quite a while, but it's probably something that I certainly wasn't aware of. And... Um, Something just something to be applauded. I think. I, I mean, it would be a great way for the industry to go. Um, can oh, you imagine no. AWS powering off unused um, instances? For Office three six five, Adobe. Imagine. I, I agree, AJ. It's the gesture more than anything. Two dollars, two pounds, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. It's the gesture that they've gone. We're going to be proactive here and say, you're a customer. We like you as a customer. We value you as a customer. You're actually not using what you've paid for. 
do you know what? We're going to give you however many months or whatever back. And actually Slack have what they've defined as a fair billing policy anyway, whereby they will refund you if you're not using it, which I mean, yeah, we need more of that in the SaaS world, surely. But is it realistic? It is, it's, it's all about building that trust, isn't it? Um, with your customers. And it's something we've talked about and we'll probably talk about again when we talk uh, when we mention audits a little bit later on. But at the moment where we know there's organisations, software vendors out there auditing customers during uh, COVID and the coronavirus lockdown, it's actually really refreshing to have a story about um, a, a SaaS vendor actually having that trust or trying to build that trust in our customer service. Because at the end of the day, the SaaS market is so competitive now. I mean, you just look, for example, at the number of um, SaaS-based project management tools that are available out there in the world. So it's become such a competitive, such a cutthroat market. You've got the, the companies that are going to do well in the future, the ones that will actually go that extra mile for their customers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, I, uh, just from a personal perspective, um, I realized two hours to go that I needed to cancel my Office 365 sub because I, I've got, I had a personal subscription. I'm not using it because I've got, I've got it for work. So, um, yeah, 10 p.m. on Tuesday, I thought, oh, I must cancel that. 60 quid back. Um, it would have auto-renewed and I, I wouldn't have used it for another year. Um, and they know I haven't used it because it's not installed anywhere. Um, that's a prime example. You know, fair billing would be a good thing. I that to a few years ago in the perpetual world where, you know, it used to be if you have Microsoft on your desktop, it's not the fact that you're using it, it's the fact that you could use it and we're going to rinse you for that money because we can, because that's a license agreement. It's a completely different world with Slack, isn't it? Yeah. To, to be fair, I think the majority of, of software vendors selling on-premise solutions still deal in those terms, Martin. I mean, you look at you, you just got to look at Oracle and their VMware licensing policy, for example. You know, they'll make you pay for an entire estate because you might actually use it, and it's like, well, that's just ludicrous. So, I mean, absolutely fair play to Slack. I think what they've done is a really, really good thing. Yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it, how we're viewing not paying for something you're not using from a vendor perspective as being innovative. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we're all sat here going, Oh my God, we're not using it. We don't have to pay for it anymore. But actually that should be the norm, right? That should be the standard subscription yeah. stuff. And we're sat here like going massive kudos and kudos to them a hundred percent. But it's weird how it seems like an innovative move from a software vendor to not pay for something you're not using. I, I that, that is the model though, isn't it? It's about transitioning from um, having to buy all of the stuff you think you might need, um, you know, in the old school perpetual world, moving to this SaaS model where actually you're, you kind of, you've got some more flexibility of stopping and starting stuff. Um, this is probably the, the next level. And it all depends on how the market reacts to that, whether, whether um, you know, the likes of Slack, who I guess, are then using this as a differentiator back to our, I guess, our teams and our 365 conversation of previous parts. We can just sort of differentiate and how the, the, the customer service and the customer value is is defined within the market might lead to more companies doing this. And I guess the established ones probably won't because they don't need to, if we're mm -hmm. honest. Whereas the newish comers might see that as the, you know, the, the low risk, um, uh, but then also low commitment as well um, model. I, I agree because Slack is relatively new, right, as, a, as an organization. So it's kind of a next gen strategy, right? They're trying to build loyalty and they know their market. Whereas some of the 
you know, the older players or the previous bigger players are they're comfortable with their market share. So they don't, I'll be surprised if Microsoft or, you know, one of the older ones started offering this kind of model, but I like it. It's a disruptor. seems like. How would that impact their, say for example, Adobe or Microsoft, one of the big kind of early adopters of, SaaS and subscription modeling. If they did turn around now and say, you don't have to wait for your true up, you don't have to wait for anniversary date. If you're not using it for a certain period of time, that particular license, that subscription, we're just going to automatically stop it for you. How would that actually impact a huge organization like them in terms of their profits, their revenue, their bottom lines, et cetera? I mean, is that even feasible for someone that big? Well, I think when they need to predict revenue, um, even from the hosting costs for to be able to cope with any sort of demand that that's usually the bit that they like to understand is and also if they are vcpe funded then there's an expectation of return um if they're a new, relative newcomer slack are relatively new compared to the likes of obviously adobe and microsoft but um to gain market share then it might need to be slightly innovative in their commercial models and then once they, they may withdraw that at a later date, depending on how they can, you know, correctly predict their, their revenues and their uh, operational requirements to deliver to customers. So I hate to bring up the C word, but coronavirus, right? In the UK alone, we've had about 800,000 people lose their jobs since the start of the pandemic. If you are not probably all going to be IT users, but say you take a couple of hundred thousand of those as being IT users with software licensing, with subscriptions, etc. You couldn't forecast that though, could you? And to be fair, people are still coming now looking at budgets for next year, even for subscription, hardware, et cetera, because we don't know what the new norm's going to look like. So, no, yeah. that's true. That's true. But if they're going to automatically refund you, that's slightly different. That's a really, really unknown unknown. Whereas at yeah. least with this situation, um, there's the element that there's an ownership and responsibility on the end user to be able to say, oh, I need to stop all that. And that I, whether they rely on people not doing that or they, they're, they're, they're kind of shifting the accountability to the end user rather than driving it themselves would be, I guess, the only differentiator I could think there. Um, I, I think there's two aspects to it. There's the cloud economics aspect, which is that as a technology provider, they're under-provisioning all the time. They're expecting... 70% usage, 80% usage. So it's a bit like an airline overselling seats. They're expecting people not to turn up. Um, so maybe that would push prices up because they, they'd have less slack, if you pardon the pun, um, in, in, in their provisioning. But also, of course, any SaaS company worth its salt is measured on subscription income and active users and things like that. So... Um, and isn't... Um, there you go, sorry to interrupt, but isn't lifetime value a big thing for SaaS companies as well. And you're much more likely to stick with that vendor and love that vendor if they're looking, if they've got your back. It, it's, all, it's all about what the VCs and what the stock market are looking at in terms of what the right metric is for measuring the success of a, of a SaaS company. And you're right, it should be a long-term contract value, um, not, not monthly revenue. It's, it's too, that's too lumpy. It's, it's what's your three-year revenue from a customer, that sort of thing. Uh, IBM have added support if you want to run IBM software within a container environment. I know containers are a very small proportion of most people's environment, I would have thought, but it's growing and it's unknown. 
Um, in true IBM style, you can only do it within their certain environments using tracking to make sure that they trust you. Um, and I think they join, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think they join the only other vendors, Oracle, that have mentioned anything about containers from, from memory. Mm -hmm. um, anyone else see this one? Yeah, I mean, this feels like um, the new ILMT, and I guess this is all focused around their sort of acquisition of Red Hat and the fact they're trying to um, accelerate the use of OpenShift and the container platform within the old IBM stack. So there seems to be two ways of doing this. So it's a certified container, which um, you know contains everything you need to run it. Um, and that's run, I guess it seems to be, and again, this, the details on this are relatively sketchy at this early point, but there's a, a product called the IBM License Service, which um, seems to be um, the ILMT of containers. So that seems to be contained within the certified containers, so it can calculate the vCPU based on, I think, 30-minute interval, so make sure you're paying for the bits you're using for. And then the cloud packs, which is um, another area where they're kind of bolting on a kind of almost a, um, uh, a runtime version of, of open, open shift and open um, the, the, the cloud uh, container platform. Um, and again, they've got this IBM license service. Um, it seems they seem to be releasing this and saying that you have to have it. Absolutely. There are no um, exceptions in running this and they need to make sure um, that it's capturing the right information, you're, you're paying for the right stuff. Looking at the people that are working on sort of IBM audits and, and various um, IBM related activities, there doesn't seem to be any um, direct feedback as to how they collect that information. Because I think if we remember, ILMT collections were pretty erratic to start with in the first release. Um, even now there's, there's still false positives, but it's obviously much, much better. Um, and whether the, that particular product has got anything to do with HCL, having acquired that, probably not, but not sure again. So I think this is one, one to watch, but it, this is another one where, where containers is going to be the new possible audit poke where people will make sure that that's, um, running compliantly. And then I think until we get more information on what that particular tracking tool does, how it, how it's effectively backended, what scripts, what, what are the issues you might encounter for collecting inaccurate data? I think we, we can't really sort of say anything more than that at this stage. Unless um, Barry or AJ, you or any of the other guys have got I, any more I, exposed to it. I've been um, doing some research on this over the last twenty minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> Since I became aware that I'd probably be asked to talk about it anyway. <laughs> now, in all, in all seriousness, I, I just had a quick look at IBM. Um, so, for those that don't know, IBM have a, a bring your own uh, licensing eligible cloud policy. Uh, and that details the public clouds that you're actually allowed to run their products on on sub capacity terms. They've actually added to that now. So, there's, there's actually a notifier here. So, they actually will allow it on certain third party Kubernetes services now as well. So, they've called out Amazon, Google, obviously their own uh, cloud, cloud service, but Amazon, Google, and Microsoft Azure have also got Kubernetes service that they will allow uh, container licensing on. So, that's one thing that's interesting. So, they've already called out four, four different public cloud platforms. 
The other thing is I'm picking up on a couple of the points Stuart made. So they, there's also a, uh, an addendum available. So if you want to take advantage of the container licensing, you have to agree a passport advantage addendum with them. And the terms in that are actually quite brutal when you look at some of this. So um, with what Stuart was saying is that there's no option to run the IBM license service um, is, is absolutely bang on. So it's either you run the IBM license service or you license at full capacity. Now, if you're talking about on a public cloud where you might not actually have that kind of information, um, I, I think that's, that's absolutely brutal. That really is. And it is, as Stuart said, it's, it's, a, it's a no ifs, ands, or buts. Is you run the IBM license service or, you know, uh, or, or you just don't have the license, uh, the container license in terms available to you. And if uh, this is the interesting bit as well, because you're talking about it being a possible audit mode, there's a, there's a bit in here that says if at any time IBM becomes aware of circumstances indicating that client is not operating all or a portion of their environment, da, 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 da. the question mark for you there is what do they mean by if they become aware? Because if you're talking about running it on their public cloud, does that then mean that they're constantly monitoring that for your compliance with the container licensing terms? Because if they are, that's that's quite a dangerous scenario to be in, in my opinion. They could become aware if you rang up for a support call. That's, that's true. Yeah. Just caught people out in the, I mean, you know, caught people out in the past, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, one of the other things as well in this addendum, un unlike standard subcapacity licensing terms, they don't allow manual tracking or manual counting of licenses. So um, with with uh, standard subcap, if under certain conditions, if you've got a really small environment or you've managed to wrangle a contractual waiver from IBM for whatever reason, you can actually uh, manually count your subcapacity license requirements. Generally, if you're, you know, you're, as an enterprise, you have less than a thousand users or, or less than a thousand people using products deployed. On on the terms here, there is absolutely no manual tracking or manual counting of container capacity allowed whatsoever. So even if you're talking about one container on the public cloud, you need to actually run the IBM license service reports to provide that data back if you need to. Um, in, in my previous role, when I <clears throat> got into a fair bit of depth in some of the Red Hat um, applications and products and services, um, it seems they've got quite a good ability to delve into what is the what is the consumption of various elements, and they're supposedly certifying license models from vendors on on OpenShift. Now, I didn't know how far that got, but I wonder if this is maybe born out of a, like an Ansible type automation with a bit of OpenShift intelligence to be able to delve into that. So, if it's native. And it collects all the information you need, then yeah, it should be probably should be quite simple to run on everything. The question I think everyone's got, certainly within all of the LinkedIn posts and comments and chats that we've all had sort of offline, is is you know how do you validate and and provide some veracity on what the tool collects, how it collects it, just to make sure yeah. it's doing it in the right way, and you don't go, well, hang on a minute, oh, I've just paid a you know. Twenty thousand pounds because I've used this software, and you'd later find out that actually it was a false positive or whatever it might be. So I think that's the bit I think people are interested in trying to find out, you know, yeah. how, how accurate the tool is, what you have to do to put the, the things in place, and what the impacts if you fall foul of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really interested to see what the, what technology the the IBM license service is being built on because. Um, the other question I have here is, is actually if they're now certifying third-party public clouds and you have to run 
the IBM license service to generate those reports, there must be a mechanism for actually getting that tool onto a third party public cloud, which to me suggests that it's going to be part of the cloud pack that you're going to be deploying to that cloud. Whether that's the case or not, I, I don't know, but it's the only logical thing that I can think of. Okay, moving on. ITAM Review has been conducting a survey into uh, current audits during COVID. Uh, the suspicion was that audits would be up during COVID, but we wanted to validate that. Uh, ran a quick survey over August and September. Um, quite interesting looking at the results. They, it's a very mixed bag. 40% of ITAM Review audience is saying there's no change, there's not much, you know, same you know, business as usual. But a, uh, I think about 40, 50% were saying there's either a significant increase or a slight increase in audit activity. Well, the interesting bit I saw on, the, on some of the preview you shared was that IBM was most, one of the most unhelpful and also the most helpful. Which is um, well I think done. That's country also. based. I, I think that depends on the auditor you get as well. Yeah, I reckon that's country slash auditor based because yeah. I've had some nightmares, but then some legends. So, because I mean, obviously you think about it, KPMG and, and Deloitte tend to be the two favourites for auditing, but I know EY is really trying to develop their IBM audit practice as well at the moment. So, I think the only one out of the big four that don't currently do it are PwC. Um, they tend to do sort of VMware, Microsoft, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it really depends on the audits you get. I, I've um, defended IBM audits with two of those three that I've just mentioned. I won't specify which ones. One of them, every occasion I've dealt with them have been utterly clueless, um, and the other one, not so much. So I, th I think it really depends on, on which auditor you get, and it could well be country-based as well, potentially, and, and the available, availability of talent. But away from IBM, those results as a whole, I'm going to throw the, mor uh, the moral fibre element of it here of a global pandemic and 50 plus percent of the respondents are saying yeah. a significant or an increase in audit activity. Mm. That is, uh, we're going through something that no one in our lifetime has ever gone through. Yes, they're revenue makers. They've got to make money. They've got to keep going as a business. But at the same time, you've got people have no idea what their future looks like the last thing they need is to worry about your company coming in and banging their fist and their drum and saying we're going to audit you give us some more money including including hospitals there's a few that i mean uh, just uh, mic drop just but it, it, it doesn't help either when you get one of the big four releasing a report as i'm sure you'll all remember from uh, a few months back releasing mm. a report encouraging software vendors to generate extra revenue at the moment by by conducting all this you know and, and this comes back to what we said earlier it's, it's completely damaging to the customer relationship yeah it is i think from a hospital perspective yeah you know back to david's very moral fiber which i think we all <laughs> try and uh, lean towards uh i mean there seem to be i don't know this for 100 percent sure but there seem to be this kind of almost um not writing off of debt because there was some fairly big debt, debt debts on a lot of a lot of the hospitals that seem to be kind of alleviated a little bit so i wonder whether that the certain vendors might go oh they're not gonna be quite so we can't afford it and we're not gonna get the money out of them uh, it might be just a bit spurious and i think some you know i, I was speaking to um i better be careful here um no don't be of, name names <laughs> well yeah i can't do that uh yeah so uh, there are certain vendors that I'm sure we're all aware of, and I'm not going to name them, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to guess them. Well, they've gone from one to the other, and they have 
uh, tried the audit uh, approach and being the, oh, I'm really sorry it's out of my hands. Oh, well, actually, you know, it isn't out of their hands and that's how they're generating their revenue and how they're, if they're struggling, how they're hitting their targets. Um, and so some of it can be a little bit spurious um, and a little bit speculative without the, you know, I've seen, I've heard stories of letters going into customers saying, um, we understand you're short on your licensing and you need to pay us £100,000 as a start for 10 and you know a, a lot of these practices still go on um you know i've heard certain ibm uh settlements have, have been very generous recently because again they need to get their, their numbers on the board and stuff like that so yeah we're back we're back to the audit defense conversation which is make sure you understand the rules of engagement and how you can push back as a be more like slack. this was the other theme coming out of the audit results is that they some of the audit requests were quite salesy um, they're also softer so they won't push too hard because of the current climate but they're still asking and they're also willing to settle just to get get it done and i think you know some people could take advantage of that because they just want some money on the table um, and they'll probably settle for a lot less than they might have done six months ago yeah, but still, uh, uh, the hospital one, personally for me, yeah, regardless of wiping off debt, like Stuart said, etc. Who, what executive has sat around a table and gone, oh, our figures are looking pretty poor, uh, poor this quarter. We need to get some extra revenue. Let's go after hospitals and trying to save everyone and find a cure for a global virus. Uh, how we're too busy helping people to worry about this we might get some money out of them it's, it's, it's <laughs> an interesting thought process isn't it to say the oh, least it's just like this is an adult these are adults that have kind of made these decisions to go after hospitals yeah i mean the thing is though obviously the the license compliance teams and the audit teams in the major vendors i mean they're under pressure to deliver results as well so i, I think it's a case of uh, us just going use any method we can, go to any customer we can to get some revenue in. Oh, hang on a minute, let's make it a little bit more realistic. We haven't done them for a few years, so let's go and get them. And I don't think they really care about what business model that, that customer has or, or what industry they work in. It's just about getting their targets, isn't it? You know, I mean, on that point, um, Oracle have slipped to second place. So they were the worst auditor, worst software publisher to meet during an audit, the least helpful but they've been surpassed by microfocus. They're going to be living out of Yeah, I was going to say, the only <laughs> table we're going down is a good thing. I, I, I'm actually glad you mentioned that because I was coming on to microfocus. Because <laughs> I think it's interesting, really, isn't it, that, that one of the most aggressive auditors um, known in the industry, and, and I think most people, end users and consultants alike, agree on this point, have just become even more aggressive during the, the during the course of the lockdown. I mean, I'm personally aware of at least two or three audits that they've conducted since March in the UK. Um, you know, just that's just ones I know about. I'm sure if we cast them out and ask people, we'd get feedback on quite a few that are coming in over, over the last six months or so. Yeah, and of course their numbers are, their revenue numbers are awful, so that's why they're doing it. Um, mm. And I think, I mean, the other thing, I'm not, I'm not sure, I think you were saying, Barry, I'm not sure there's any intelligence behind it, but um, of course, a lot of ITAM managers got laid off, furloughed, 
at the start of lockdown as well. So immediately your defence team is is reduced and you're not going to be organised and you're probably, you know, you may just go, oh, I've missed this and end up settling incorrectly mm-hmm. um, because you just, you've got other things to be worrying about and I'll hear some money go away. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you've hit the nail on the head. There are the amount of LinkedIn posts that even now I'm seeing from ITAM people saying, you know, due to coronavirus, et cetera, I've been laid off. Your, your teams are weakened massively, aren't they? You're right. It's, oh, they've let three of their ITAM team go. We're just going to send them this audit. They've only got one person to deal with it. Let's see what sticks. When you think about the, the operational technical teams who'd be providing the data that you would want, I mean, you know, they've got their hands for just keeping the lights on for a lot of businesses. So they, they're, they're going to be diverted on other higher priority activities. They don't need this sort of stuff either. You know, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Mm. I'll be interested, I don't know if you've got any other data on this, Martin, of audit requests versus audit engagement. So how many people have either ignored it or just told them to go away? And how many people are actually engaging in, in, in actual audit activity it would be quite interesting. Yeah, um, a, a lot of, uh, right, let, let me just go through one last bit on this. So um, we also asked during the survey to, for people to share their audit defence strategies. So we've almost got this crowdsourced advice book on how to defend audits, which are, I'm sharing at Wisdom next week and then I'll publish for everyone to have a look at next time. But in, a, in summary, there's four four stages here for audit defence. One is the fundamentals, which is stay compliant in the first place, because that's saving off. That's all in the long run. <laughs> New um, item. Things like three-way NDAs, stand up an item practice so you can swap away these requests with good data, etc. Uh, the biggest chunk of advice, which I'll dig into a lot more detail, and I'll publish this on, on the item review, but basically the essence of the, the real chunk of all the advice from all these practitioners from around the world is to own the audit process. Um, have, your own, have your own policy and process and go to your drumbeat, not the system, the script that the publisher wants to throw upon you. Um, uh, to, to your point, Stuart, be prepared because a lot of people are saying we don't get classic requests. We get them through the back door, you know, inquiries on the service desk or something or inquiries to technicians. Um, and the final point was around negotiation. So. Um, there's a trade-off between settlement figure and the turnaround. So you could, you can get a really low settlement if you're prepared to settle quickly, for example, if you just get it out of the way and the vendor would often, often accept that. Um, and also, you know, think strategically about what that vendor is trying to sell in terms of their latest, shiniest thing. Um, and that works a lot of the time in terms of negotiation. I'll share all of that on the ITAM review in the next couple of weeks. And thank you for everyone that contributed towards that. Jargon buster. Like, jargon buster. <laughs> jargon buster! Lots of chatter around RPA, robotic process automation. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone's going to take this via the medium of cake. It's got to be pretty simple, isn't it? Basically, you get the robot to eat the cake on your behalf. That's not difficult, is it? I'd like the robot to make the cake so I can still eat it though. So, so some kind of food processor then, Stuart. Exactly, yeah. It's already been done. Exactly. <laughs> In right. the 1980s. Done. Move on. But my sort of very primitive view of RPA is that it's, if you, for example, if you've got an invoice that you received from a supplier, 
somebody's got to click on it, download it, take all the data from it, and it, upload that to Sage or whatever. And a robot could potentially do that. That's my idea of what RPA does. Anyone else got a view on this? What is, yeah. what is, what is RPA via the medium of cake? I'm not doing it by cake, but I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Martin. Um, just, just to your point, my advice would be, though, if you're going to upload an invoice somewhere, please, God, don't let it be to SAP, because you just open yourself <laughs> up the world of hurt there. Um, yeah, so I mean, RPA is where you're automating processes, and there's so many different tools and platforms that you can you can do this with now. So UI Chat is uh, probably one of the, uh, sorry, UI Path, not UI Chat. I do apologise, UiPath. Um, UiPath is probably one of the biggest ones in the world right now. Uh, obviously, Microsoft do it with their, their Power Platform. Um, you know, there's there's uh, on a smaller scale. There's uh, is it pronounced Zapier or Zapier? Zapier. I mean, you can do do um, RPA stuff with Amazon. It's effectively any automated process that you can set up and then just leave it to run in the background. Obviously, that opens you up to all core all kinds of licensing conundrums depending on, on which software vendor you're talking about. Um, give, give us an example of that. What's a, what's a, where RPA can trigger license dispute? Uh, well, I, I think SAP is a, is a good one, actually, um, since we've touched on them, because RPA can be subject to indirect access um, licensing rules, which, as we all know from a couple of years back, um, or three years ago with the Diageo cases, uh, it can be exceedingly painful financially for organisations. Um, and it also, I guess that would depend on, on how new you are to SAP. If you've got uh, products from pre-April 2018 when they change some of the licence rules, it's going to be potentially more painful for you. Um, but Microsoft have a whole set of uh, licence terms around RPA with Microsoft Office. Um, I did a, a piece of work we were analysing the usage uh, for a client where they were um, setting up all of their robots uh, using UiPath to, to access um, Microsoft Office and, and run tasks in Microsoft Office. And uh, Microsoft now actually do an Office 365 subscription specifically for robots, for, for RPO, so for, for unattended robots, I should say. Um, so yeah, you do need to make sure you're, you're aware of the impact um, of, of using robots to conduct your work on, on any products and how you want them to interact with the products. So basically in the future when an ITAM manager says, I need more resources, they're just going to go buy a license for another robot. Well, I've got a couple of uh, example examples. So um, you mentioned there's lots of them. Um, there's a guy called, I think his name called Darren Atkins. So he's working with HS and certainly he's based in sort of East Anglia. He was doing um, with Blue Prism a lot of um, that RPA-led um, clinician-type uh, activities that saved you know you know tens of thousands of hours of clinicians' uh, uh, use. There was also another example: um, a company called Eggplant that are do test automation, but they also have an um, RPA element to that and. The use case was in this in this scenario that there was a um, hospital that had one system that had rooms to be booked, one system that had clinicians to be booked, and one system that had patients to be booked. And they didn't speak to each other at all. So each night, all of the different systems had to be printed out, and then the the the, 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 uh, the patient didn't turn up, so the, the clinician was there waiting and wasted and all the rest of it. And so they put this um, the eggplant element in there to actually automate all or 
sort of automate those systems to talk to each other. So it's real time if the room suddenly went, oh, there's a problem with the, the, the heating doesn't work, the room became unavailable, they could then automatically look at where the other rooms were and, and allocate that. And that saved a lot of time and effort. There was a huge amount of use cases. It is about that kind of repetitive task, you know, what, what, what doesn't need a, a human's touch to it, so to speak, and automate that. Um, but as you say, you know, how it interacts with other systems, databases, and in ERP and all the rest of it is, is one that probably needs um, a kind of item manager or, or someone that understands that to be involved, certainly at the early point of the kind of technical design authority type process, just but to map out what the commercial yeah, Absolutely great. Is it the case that RPA could do some SAM work as well? Or maybe procure, especially procurement stuff? It's no reason why you couldn't. I mean, there's there's platforms sufficiently technologically advanced that, for example, you could you could be sent um, a license agreement um, by a vendor. Imagine actually having a robot upload it into your your SAM tool for you. You know, there's no reason why that couldn't be done. So yeah, that would be quite interesting. So as, as David says, we want more resources. You know, just get some robots on the job. Well, I mean, it goes back to what Tracy was saying before we started recording about all those admin tasks of checking invoices against, you know, licenses yeah. and all that kind of reconciliation. Imagine how much time an ITAM manager would save if you could automate a lot of that. I mean, you still need human interaction to check the robots aren't taking over the world and are doing it right. But you could still save an awful lot of time and focus on the bigger picture and the, the bigger fish that you need to fry. In between invoices and uploading stuff, they might be secretly designing a warhead. <laughs> Yeah. Or adding oh. extra licenses on so you get screwed when you next get audited. Yeah. Only if Skynet put an RPA platform out there, yeah. What's Skynet? A modern oh, oh, shut don't, the don't, front don't, door, don't, don't. Don't do this again, David. <laughs> What's Skynet? <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, is that sorry? Should I know what that is? It's not, it's not Disney, don't worry. I'm oh, going to have to educate you one of these days. I don't know why we're so surprised every time he says, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? It just happens so often. I'm sorry, how can anyone get to the age of 30 and not be familiar with the Terminator films? Oh, man, no, I've never watched any of the Terminators. I'm only just starting on the Marvel films. Give me a chance. And that's only because it's on Disney and they're Disney related. Sorry. <laughs> oh, mate. I'm sorry. You're right. You know you've got that nice soft line background for your... Yeah, is it back to the front? No, no, it's good. It's good. It's just that when you move your head, there's a you bit keep of emerging. You can see your wardrobe. You can see what's in your wardrobe. How oh, can you? <laughs> we'll stay really close, really still. Cause it's be be careful, Joe. It just means Martin's casing the joint. <laughs> oh, it looks like it's already been cased in <laughs> the state of this room. Uh, job of the week. Job, job of, of the week. week. Um... Hardware. I, I'm most curious about this. I don't think it's it's. Hang on, I'm sorry. Let me just interrupt you there. Isn't there a tradition with first-time podcasters in the job of the week? There is. In the jingle. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Did I mention the time change? <laughs> Prepare to be hazed, Tracy. Oh, fine. Bring it on. Please, could you sing us in? Introduce job of the week with your finest voice. <laughs> Sing it in on on the fly. Oh my gosh! Um, Any tune you like. It's the job of the week. Nice. 
That'll do nicely. <laughs> awesome. Well played. I was most struck by this just from the actual title. I'm not sure if this is the actual job title or whether it's just an SEO title to hook as many responses as possible. But it's hardware and software has manager at Whitbread in the UK. Um, I was asked why we, we had a couple of new recruits join the ITAMRI recently and we did a little training session for them. And somebody asked a question, why, what's the difference between SAM and ITAM? Because you see software asset managers as a job title, you see IT asset managers, but you don't typically see hardware asset managers as a job title, do you? Shocking. So why is that? Why, why does, why does well, that? Dave. Oh, mate, don't get me started. We ain't got long <laughs> left. Um, so personally, from my standpoint, you see software asset management roles and ITAM roles because the software side of things, the role is primarily focused on licensing and governance and all of the software side. I think a lot of organizations now are realizing that software and hardware go hand in hand. Finally, the penny is dropping. Hardware is important too. Um, and so they're starting to expand the roles out into the overall ITAM piece. So you're doing SAM and, and HAM and maybe even some configuration management over here. Why you're not seeing harder asset management jobs on their own independently, I don't know. People need to start focusing on hardware. Maybe they don't have the budget for a dedicated hardware person and they want just a general ITAM. You're doing software and hardware. I, I genuinely don't know. A lot of companies now, though, since coronavirus, I mean, my past couple of engagements, all of the messages and emails are about hardware. And as much as I love ITAM and as much as I love hardware asset management, it's getting a bit... Can we talk software, please? I'm getting the, the, the little twitches. I want to talk licensing and SaaS and stuff. But um, I, th I just think organizations are migrating away from just realizing that SAM and HAM are two independent things, bringing them more together because they do go hand in hand. You need to do effective hardware asset management, to do effective software asset management and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, that's what you covered on that, the webinar you did this week, I think, with ServiceNow. And item you were the one person, yes. I was the one person that listened to it. But no, no, it was, it was true what you said, you know, that hardware has come into focus because everyone has been scrabbling around to try and get hardware to put stuff on it so people can work from home or work from remotely. I think, I think what's interesting as well, actually, um, coming back to what you said earlier, Mike, so just really through the job description, I, I'm, I'm, I do wonder if the, the whole description is an SEO piece to try and grab people's attention. Because when you actually read... The, the job description, there's not too much of a mention of hardware asset management in there, you know, and, and actually looking at it as well, the first first three or four bullet points say, say to me, and I could be interpreted of it, this is what it suggests to me, this is a company that's put a sand tool in as a silver bullet, expected it to do everything and then realise they need more than that. Because the first, first, well, the first bullet point is ensure the sand tool is correctly configured in order to optimise license usage costs. So they've already got a tool, they don't feel they're getting the value out of it. And then the next set of bullet points are, uh, manage the software asset portfolio, develop and maintain policies and processes related to software licensing. So they've got a tool, but they don't have the processes or policy around it to make it work. So I like, it's, I like it's the interesting. They've specifically called out specific uh, SaaS experience as well. They just yeah. growing um, budget going towards SaaS. People are yeah. looking for that in the job description. Yeah, so, so it's interesting to, to me without actually doing it overtly, this is a company that's advertising the fact that they've tried to do SAM already and failed. And, and oh. they actually now need some support to do it properly. But there's no mention of actual hardware responsibilities. Not, not that I can see, but that's just on a quick skim through. It pretty much everything is uh, software asset management and licensing in the actual job description. Clickbaiting ham, what have we become? I mean, I was, I was going to say, 
obviously I was a one per person, ITAM person um, at Carnival. And I used to get a bit a bit involved in ham, but uh, I didn't have time, to be honest. Um, I don't know. Um, Tracy, did you want to say, did you get involved in, in hard asset management in, in your role? Yeah, I do. I do now and, and have in the past, um, particularly with infrastructure hardware. So switches, you know, Cisco gear, um, support packs for servers. And in general, I'm always like, isn't there a person for this? <laughs> like, why does this fall to me? But um, uh, it, it spurred me to start working on my um, certification in hardware because it's just, they're so connected. Um, I agree with what David was saying. It's um, the companies have to start realizing they're, they're very much interbedded and, and it matters. So, oh, but massively. yeah, yeah. It's, I think um, you mentioned just quickly last on this point, I think we're going to see hardware even become even more important, not only because we've gone through that pandemic, but now with the ways of working and a lot of organizations reporting, right, you're working from home full time now, or you've got to split mm -hmm. work in. Okay. Well, who's going to pay for my assets that I need for my home office? My, like I was saying to AJ last week, my internet connection is not good enough. You're expecting me to do video calls with my colleagues. Who's paying for the internet upgrade? It's all these new nuances that are coming in now that need a general item for the software and hardware side of things. And it's so important, especially if we go into another lockdown or whatever, that people have that business continuity plan in place so they can provision hardware, they can provision software without disrupting things too much. Yeah, we're already seeing legislation uh, in Spain. They've just passed a law saying that, uh, that companies are responsible for all the costs of hardware and software. Um, if you're a home worker, if you work from home more than 30% of your week, they have to pay for everything for you. Um, so, which, which goes, I mean, I, I know you were saying David around, you know, people, you, so someone was asking employees to contribute, probably a tax efficient way of doing it yeah. and, and getting to keep the stuff at the end. So expect mm -hmm. to see more around this, um, as we you know end up living in, in a remote work world couple of little news pieces before we finish um oracle versus the sunrise firefighters um i think you've done a, a piece on this aj or about to uh, yeah. so i won't dig into it but that seems to be under the nose of the judges at the moment so really interesting stuff as always comes out when when these testaments come out so i won't dig into that please check out aj's podcast when it comes out and the other piece was aj wasn't there something in the um WhatsApp group around very historic license terms and returning CDs. Could you share, please? Yeah, I will. Yeah. Um, uh, just on those on the Oracle thing, yeah, Sunrise Firefighters in court next week. Uh, so that's sort of the first week of October. Also in court, uh, the first week of October is Google versus Oracle in the API dispute. That's in the Supreme Court uh, coming up. Is that up. still going on? It's going on. Uh, it was um, so. Uh, yeah, there, there will be a judgment on, I think, the 7th of October on that. So um, if you thought 2020 was bad already, if Oracle win that, the software industry dies overnight almost. It's mm. just, um, so wait and see, bated breath, watch this space. Um, API Armageddon coming up potentially. Um, getting back to Martin's question. Um, okay, so this is a quite a fun story really um uh an old contract for some software that um a very large organization wants want to stop buying stop paying for stop paying maintenance for they tried to cease the contract 
And the publisher came back and said, great, please return our physical media. So please return the CD or whatever else, probably floppy disk, because this is a 20-year-old contract. And they want the physical media back because that's what it says in the contract. And if they don't, reply, if they don't return it, they're in breach of copyright. So if you thought that you could move your definitive software library just into like a you know, Dropbox or something, I had a question about this um, on the forum a couple of weeks ago. Um, bear in mind that maybe at the end of the contract, you might need to return your physical media. Um, which is, I need to put a term in there that they need to come and get it and find it for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scavenger hunt. <laughs> on that note, that's a wrap. Thanks, guys and gals. Yay, thank you. Thank you. Cheers, guys. I've got a dash now. Cheers, guys. Adios. Bye, folks. Bye-bye.